0: All right. Do you want to do some follow-up? Okay. Sounds great.
1: There's hardly any. Is there any today?
0: Kind of. Not really. Yeah. I'm lumping something that probably isn't by the strictest definition follow-up into follow-up. And that is after our discussion about uh, what comes after Objective-C – A lot of people have come out of the woodwork and said, hey, guys, have you seen this Wolfram language thing? That's going to be the next big thing. That will replace Objective-C. And it's not. So, anything else? It is pretty cool, though. Oh, it's cool as hell.
2: I have no idea what I would use it for, if anything. I I think I'm not smart enough to use it, actually. But it's really (laughs) cool.
0: I mean, all kidding aside, it is very, very cool. But it's serving a completely different purpose. And... I don't see a mechanism by which that's going to be the way in which we build apps. And of course, somebody will, will say to us, oh, well, but didn't you watch the whole video? They had sliders on there and other UI elements and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but that's not that's not really the point. You know, it's not, it's not the sort of thing you'd build an app with. It's the thor- sort of thing that you would do some really impressive and very cool data computations with. But it's not something you'd build an app with.
1: Did either one of you guys have to use Mathematica in school?
0: I did, and I've long since forgotten all of it. Or no, no, I used MATLAB. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, well, Mathematica. So the guy, what's his name? Stephen Wolfram. Yep. Mathematica is to him as Emacs is to Stallman, basically. Like he's a super genius, crazy person who made an environment <laughs> where he can where he can sort of fulfill his dreams of computation, and it's just added to it and added to it over the years. Only Wolfram is a little bit more successful and a little bit more determined uh, and not quite as afflicted with RSI and, I think, hired a bunch of other people to do things. I think the difference is that Wolfram had a business that made money that let him indulge his uh, his tastes to do this type of thing. So he's built this amazing thing for himself that works the way his mind works that is basically like start with Mathematica and just expand out to fill the universe. But it it's uh, – I'm not going to say something about this like oh it's just a an insert word here because it's not just a anything like what it does is very impressive and it's like it's a life's work and it is very interesting and impressive but i think it's an application more exactly. it's an application that you can program with more than a programming language but anyway regardless of, of what you think it, it can apply to everything in that demo shows that it's good at doing the stuff in that demo but Apple, of course, would need a language that's good at doing the things that Apple needs to do. And what does Apple need to do? They need to let developers write applications. They need to write applications themselves, and they need to write an OS. And for all of those purposes, uh, this language is not useful.
0: Right. And, and don't don't let me you know, kind of shrugging it off as a replacement for Objective-C to take away from the fact that you're absolutely right. It is unbelievably impressive, the things that can be done with it, but it is serving an entirely different purpose. And that's the only point I'm trying to make.
2: Yeah, like I'm, I'm not going to be writing the next, you know, Insta paper killer in Wolfram language.
1: Yeah, and one of the aspects that it has going against it is that thus far, computer languages that lean heavily on, like the, like in the sort of cloud of what are you closer to that, sort of start grouping towards the math side of things. While always very interesting and powerful, tend not to. So thus far, I mean, it doesn't mean it can never happen, but so far, the ones that tend to be more math-like. Have not caught on as much as the ones that are less math-like, and you know I don't know why that is. But you know, for example, Haskell is another one of those languages that looks more like you're doing math, uh, or is more math-like, or even something like Lisp, kind of, sort of. uh And this definitely is towards the math side. I mean, you can solve integrals with it uh, as part of like language features, all the symbolic stuff. I mean, it started from Mathematica. How could it not be math-based? Uh, But yeah, so far, languages like that haven't caught on with uh, with the masses, no matter how cool they are for the people who use them for the things they're good at.
2: One problem I think I'd have trying to to use this for anything is that, um, kind of similar in this one, only one way uh, to AppleScript, um, I think it would be hard for me to get to start into this and to even know the kinds of things I could do. And, you know, because it can do so much. And in that way, it's it's pretty unfocused. Uh, it's very broad, and you're presented with, like, here's here's this shell, basically, this command shell, and, and this interactive uh, prompt that you can do whatever you want with. But and, and, like, the demos that he was showing off in the video look amazingly cool. I don't know necessarily how useful they would be for me, but they were still amazingly cool. But I was looking at, at the kinds of syntax he was using, the kinds of commands he was using, the kind of structures he was using, and... I don't even know where I would begin with something like that. And I've had that same problem ever using Wolfram Alpha as well, where every time I've tried to use Wolfram Alpha, I've, I've tried you know, phrasing things in a certain way, and I never, I never guess the correct syntax, and it never does what I want. And I can tell there's a lot there, but it's really hard to, to get started. It's really hard to know, like, okay, what can I do here, and how do I ask it to do
1: that? I think like Lisp, I think the language itself is probably super simple. I think there's only a few things that exist. You know, they probably have like tuples and some syntax for function calls and a couple other symbolic things to write math and ASCII that get converted into symbol representations. That is the language, but the language is pointless. Like if you looked at that big, they kept paging through those page after page, of those little rectangles underneath each one of those is a vocabulary, which is basically like a library, you know, like. What what functions can I call what things can I type that's not part of the language per se it's not as if those are keywords like if and you know uh, loops and and function declarations like the language syntactically look very simple to its discredit I think and that it it would be looks like it'd be very cumbersome to do anything remotely complicated. Uh, but the whole, the power of the thing is look at all these basically libraries that we have, look at all the different functions we have, look at what the options to those functions are, look at how those functions can be composed with each other. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of weird to call it a language. That's why, you know, it's more like an application or a set of libraries and the set of libraries look huge. Like there, there surely there's some function that does the thing that you want that has the options that you want. And if you can't find it exactly, you can build it by composing it out of other really powerful pieces and Put it all on a web front end and get it through a web services API. Lots of cool stuff in there, but uh, it, I, I think it's more like an application. Uh, it's more like an API than it is a language. And whatever it is, it's not suited to write GUI applications or operating systems for phones or desktops. So,
0: right. I had the same thought that this would be an, a potentially extremely powerful add-on or, or you know, processing, not unit, but I guess uh, like a dynamic library for, for something in Objective-C if you could get some sort of interface into it, but I don't see it replacing Objective-C or anything like that. Very cool, though. Very, very cool. So, what else is going on? You want to talk about this uh, SSL bug? Go to fail. <laughs> All right, so moving on. No, I'm just kidding.
1: It was like meme-ready. Just <laughs> really, for, it came pre-memed. I love that go to fail.com was actually available. Not for long, but yeah.
0: And it was useful. Yeah, well once it was once it became a thing. Uh I don't know if I have all that much to say about this. I'm not sure I concur, Marco, with your tinfoil hat reasoning that it this was a deliberate act. And I'm I'm happy for you to convince me that I am wrong, but I'm not saying it isn't. It wasn't deliberate, but it, to me, it didn't reek of being deliberate, like you seem to think. Do you want to kind of recap what leads you to believe that?
2: Um, sure. I mean, I think I'm not saying this was definitely an NSA you mm-hmm. know, uh, security breach, where you know, like it, my my theory that that I think is is uh, potential. I, I'm I don't even know if I would say the most likely, but. I, I think it's reasonable to look at these events that this one duplicated line was inserted in, into this uh, SSL. Uh, verif- uh, it was a certificate verification code or a. a uh, common name checking part, wasn't it?
1: It was the, it, the step that checks that the common names match and it skips over that step. I believe so.
2: It, it was some part of the uh, certificate verification step so that you can make sure that the, the certificate, the, the SSL server that you're talking to, is who they say they are and not a man-in-the-middle who, you know, like, man-in-the-middle attacks, I don't, I'm probably not even qualified to explain them in all their, you know, it, everything properly, but um, somebody who who could, like, intercept your network traffic at an ISP or a wireless router in a coffee shop or whatever the case may be, your school, your workplace, somebody who could intercept or your government, somebody who could intercept your, um, your network traffic. Normally, SSL is designed, if everything's done right, so that, to, so that the server and you can talk securely and you know when you connect to the server you can verify through these series of, of uh, cryptography steps. You can verify that the server you're talking to really is who they say they are and nobody else in the middle is listening in in a way that they can decode your data. This uh, this bug broke that assumption. And so that somebody could have been listening in and breaking SSL and watching your traffic and, and the operating system was just skipping that verification step or, or a part of it. So the way this was inserted in, in the file... You, and, and, and the the files are open source. Not every revision is open source. But uh, you can see like the version that shipped in 10.8 and the version that shipped in 10.9. And you can see the diff there. So the diff is not entirely convincing because there could have been a lot, a lot of intermediate revisions between. You don't know what happened between those two. All you see is beginning point and ending point. But... If you look at the diff, not a lot in the file has changed between the two releases. Uh, there's this this context parameter to some of these security calls that was removed. Uh, basically, it looks like the API just changed minorly so that you know this one argument was no longer necessary or something like that. So most, not even uh, some of the calls had this very this very basic change uh, to them that just like removed this argument. There were almost no other changes in the entire function. And then this one extra go to fail line inserted in the middle, and so if you look at this, if you just look at the diff, it looks pretty bad. Like it looks like wow, there like no edits happened in the surrounding lines uh, between these two releases. Just this one line was inserted kind of in the middle of nowhere, and it looks pretty bad. Of course, you know as I said though, you can't rely only on that. I think what what worries me. And what makes me think that this could be, this could have been nefarious. And 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 again, and I want to say in my tweets, I don't necessarily believe that that Apple itself, you know, officially knew about this or introduced this intentionally or was working with the NSA. I think it's much more likely, seeing how the NSA works, knowing that they have a program where they, the New York Times reported this. I'll have to find the link, but I believe it said they had an annual budget of two hundred and fifty million dollars to go do things exactly like this, where basically. Uh, the NSA will kind of will, will get to an engineer who works on who works at one of the big tech companies, or they will they'll have people sitting on standards bodies trying to argue for different standards uh to be like, subtly weakened or have have these backdoors introduced. Uh, or the people who work at tech companies will you know become uh, NSA um I don't know supporters agents whatever they're called. Um, so we know that that kind of thing happens. We you know all of that from the Edward Snowden leaks and from the from the Associated reporting that's gone on since then. All of that, you know that's that's not that's not like an artificial tin, tinfoil hat thing. That thing, that kind of thing, does happen. Um, and so, for this bug to be inserted in this file at this time, and so and again, another little piece of circumstantial evidence, um, this bug was inserted uh, in I, I believe it was fall of twenty twelve. It was like um, it was the month before one of the NSA slide decks claimed that Apple had joined the PRISM program in some way. And that timing is really suspect as well. So you can look at this, and we don't know, yet at least, we don't know what happened. We probably will never know what happened. It could have been an innocent mistake, an innocent, you know, line paste out of a VI buffer, or a weird merge artifact when the files were merged. Who knows, right? It, it you don't. We can't tell exactly, but... Normally, when you try to rule out a kind of nefarious tinfoil hat conspiracy theory kind of thing, you do it by saying, well, the simpler, more likely explanation is honest reason X. And I think in this case, looking at the environment we're in, looking at the kinds of things that we now know go on with the NSA and and what they do with tech companies, and you look at exactly – I mean, for a one-line bug like this, this is a hell of a line to pick. Like if you like, what it did in the way it did it, it was so subtle. It was subtle enough. If you think about it, it's perfect. It's subtle enough that it it would it passed a lot of any kind of internal review they had, and and we we can talk about that they probably had insufficient review and insufficient tests, but um, any kind of internal review, it would it might it might skip by because it looks, it's it blends in, it's not obvious. It's not even obvious that it is a bug. Once you even once you spot it, you kind of have to notice and be like, "Oh, wait a minute!" Like you have to think about it for a second. Oh, that's that's wrong, and it could be explained away if somebody was caught inserting it. It can be explained away by saying, "Oh, I, I must have hit you know hit paste wrong or merged wrong." So there's like a plausible explanation if you get caught, and it's and it's exactly at the right point where. It wasn't breaking all SSL. It wasn't making all SSL validate, but it was making this one particular class of thing validate that the NSA has been known to do. So it's just a little too convenient in so many of these ways. The timing, the kind of thing it is, the, the perfection of like exactly the right part of the file to cause a very convenient backdoor for the NSA, and in a way that looks really subtle and hard to find and hard to attribute blame for once you do find it because you, know, you and they can I'm sure they can look at their, their version history and they can see which employee inserted that but again it's there's like a plausible reasoning oh it was must have been a mistake during the merge or something like that you know so it's just a little too convenient to be a dumb, honest mistake in given this given the context given the time it happened, what it did, the results it had, and what we now know about what our government does. So that's why I think, it, it, again, like I wouldn't say that it's definitely the NSA, but I would say it would be naive to brush it off and say, oh, it probably wasn't them. I, I think the chances are better than that, that it was them.
0: Yeah, you know, I I can't really argue with any of that. And and I don't know, It just, I guess I just want to believe that people aren't jerks like that and that our government doesn't do things like that but to be honest that's me just to keep my head in my in, head in the sand so i don't know john what do you think about all of it
1: for the timing thing i think that's just as reasonably explained by saying uh the nsa knew that this bug was in there and joining the program basically means the nsa now has the capability to intercept traffic to apple devices because of this bug that it knows about and how would it know about the bug well through its own testing uh trying to do man-in-the-middle attacks, perhaps having someone working at Apple who looks at the code before it's released to tell them that this is in there. So that would explain the timing, and that doesn't require the NSA to have caused the bug to be entered in any way. Uh, so I, the, the timing, I think, is a wash. Uh, for the, If I had to put money on it, I would bet that it's a merge error and it was accidental. Um, and that doesn't mean the NSA wasn't exploiting it to do what they do, because it seems like they knew about it based on the timing and if they knew about it i'm sure they would be exploiting it the reason i think it's a merger is because i don't think it's all that subtle i think if they were going if the nsa were going to intentionally plant something like this they would do it in a less discoverable way because once it's discovered it gets patched and the nsa's goal is not to be discovered uh this is not a you know it's if you glance at it you might miss it you know casually visually inspecting it but it's a type of thing that will be found both in terms of the code and in terms of the massive effect it has. Like, you, If they planted one, you would hope they would plant one that isn't so easy to find because this is like, oh, I can spoof a certificate and it just accepts everything. Like it accepts any garbage. It skips that entire, it's not like if I carefully construct a certificate with a particular thing or like, you know, like it's not exploiting a subtlety. It's the type of thing. It's amazing that it went undiscovered for as long as it did because of Apple's apparent total lack of testing of their security frameworks. Uh, So that I think argues against it being intentional. And the, the thing about plausible deniability, this is the really creepy part, is that I can imagine that Apple has automated merge tools for bringing builds together. So if you were to find the commit that did this, I, I would imagine there's a good chance that it could be attributable to an automated merge tool. And then who do you blame, right? Like, oh, well, someone was really clever and set up these series of dominoes such that they knew when, when we did this merge with that merge and that merge, it would mess something up. And if the only validation of a merge is a human being visually inspecting it and signing off, well, yes, that's, that's easy enough to miss. Or if the validation of a merge is it compiles and passes our apparently completely inadequate test suite uh then then that would let it go through too. So I uh, I think we, we all agree that it's it is entirely like uh, entirely possible that the, that the NSA did this and the government did this cuz like Margo said this is something this is something they do but I think this is a this would be uh, this is below the level of competence and sneakiness that I would expect from them. So I give it a less than 50% chance that it was done intentionally, more than 50% chance that it was done unintentionally and almost 100% chance that the NSA both knew about it and exploited it.
2: I mean, you know, overall, I, I agree, John, like, I, I agree that, that these things, like, all of these factors could be explained away in, in reasonable, you know, plausible explanations. It's just, like, when you, when you add it all together, the, the and, and again, like, if this would have happened a year ago, before we knew so much about, you know, from the Snowden leaks, before we knew all this stuff, a year ago, I would have looked at this and thought, oh, well, it looks like somebody made a stupid mistake, but now that we know that this stuff happens and and because of how convenient it would be you know yeah you're right that that like you know disabling these entire steps of ssl verification are pretty ham fisted however you know they got it through and it was there for over a year right so i think i'm sure they don't just try one thing and maybe the other things they tried got caught or didn't ship or are still there or yes (laughs) thanks (laughs) sleep well tonight uh yeah or are still there and and you know i'm sure they don't just leave themselves as one option you know so again i think by by looking at just the the fairly you know broad stroke that this bug uh, used i wouldn't for the same reason that you wouldn't rule out the timing uh because there's you know there's always like i wouldn't i wouldn't rule i wouldn't rule out the possibility that I'm doing this just because of how fairly ham fisted it is because in many other ways it's quite elegant in in how innocent it looks and and how hard how hard it was to catch um and you know, I'm sure they try many things, and some of them are ham-fisted, and some of them are really clever, and the, And the really clever ones, maybe they didn't work, or maybe they're still there, but this one we happen to find.
1: Well, none of us are ruling anything out. It's just like, you're over 50% for thinking it was intentional, and I'm under, but that's basically it. We're all around the middle, you know?
2: Yeah, and I'm and again, like, I'm not too far over 50%. I, I might say 60%, <laughs> you know, but... uh normally conspiracy theories you'd be like you gotta be like well there's just too many coincidences to believe your conspiracy theory you know too many coincidences would have to happen you know this i i think it's i think it's subtly the other direction it's there's you'd have to ignore a lot of a lot of coincidences that did that are the case to believe that this was totally innocent
1: so do you think apple will ever say anything publicly about the investigation that undoubtedly is taking place inside the company to determine the cause of this Oh, I really doubt that. And the second question is, will they use their disclosure canary thing? You know, like where they, um, the previous disclosure, they said we have not been contacted by government agencies to blah, 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 blah. And I forget what the word for that is. Someone in the chat room will look it up. But uh, they put that in there so they can, so that when you see that message disappear, you will know that they have been contacted by the government and told not to to, uh, say anything about it. Um, So... That's I guess the thing we can actually watch for that's actionable. The next time they do one of those security disclosure statements, if the whatever canary statement is not there, again we can't directly connect it to this incident, but at least you know. If, for example, if we see the statement again, we'll know that Apple had investigated it internally, and that the like I don't see if it was the government and they, and they haven't been forced by the government not to disclose it was the government. I don't see why they wouldn't make that public because they would basically be saying, hey, in, in essence. Uh, you know, our government hacked us, you know, they'd be angry, they'd talk to Congress about it, all this type of stuff like that, uh, if that if they determine that to be the case. Uh, But if it was just an internal error, they probably won't say anything. And if the little canary statement is still there, then we also know that the NSA is not the one making them not say anything. See,
0: but I thought that the canary statement was more about getting at user data. I thought that the canary statement was something about how we, you know, we haven't been or we haven't received any requests from the NSA to do crap we we didn't want to do.
1: I know, but, but this would be a request to sit to you're not allowed to say anything about the NSA mole that you discovered in your organization. You know, <laughs> like that. I, I get you're right; it's different categories thing. Like we've never given them user data and blah blah blah. But it was it was fairly wide ranging statement and like. They can't, they can't anticipate what they may be forced not to say anything about, but I would imagine they would remove that. They would just simply not put that statement in there because it's not an admission of anything. It's just that's the whole point of the canary. You can just remove it, and that's their sort of signal to the outside world that government people have come and told us not to say anything, and we can legally just simply not say anything, and you can interpret that as a, as a sign that we're being told not to say something about something. Yeah, maybe, but it is two different things.
0: Yeah, it says – I have it here. Uh, The very last line – this is a thing from Matthew Panzerino. The very last line of Apple's report today states, quote, Apple has never received an order under Section 215 of the USA Patriot Act. We would expect to challenge such an order if served on us, which to me sounds like something separate than what we're talking about.
1: Well, I mean, you'd have to look up what, what Section 215 of the Patriot Act says. Knowing the Patriot Act, it probably says the government can do any, whatever the hell it wants, <laughs> and you have no rights. And, oh, uh, right. in some some In some sort of vague language that's broad. But, I mean, that's all we've got, because like, they can't go back in time and put in a canary about, oh, we've never been infiltrated by the NSA, and <laughs> they've never added bugs to our code intentionally. And, and And honestly, I don't know how they would ever determine that, because like Marco said, if the best-case scenario that it actually is an individual developer... What are they going to do waterboard the guy like it could have been a legitimate <laughs> mistake they can ask him did you put that there intentionally but if he did it intentionally of course he's not going to tell you that he did and you can't force him to tell you and you'll just you'll just never know because it is a hundred percent plausible as a bug like people write bugs all the time right it just you know the lines get pasted twice like marco said like there is no literally no way to force someone to to like you'll never know if that guy's telling the truth you could torture him to death and he dies. And he never said that he did it, and you still don't know whether he was lying or not.
0: Uh, Let me tell you a story, and then maybe, Marco, you can tell us about something sweet. In my first job, I wrote uh, bingo-based slot machines, which is a weird and odd story (laughs) that's not worth explaining right now. But this was done in DOS using the Whatcom C++ compiler. And because it was done in DOS, debugging, in the traditional sense, wasn't really a thing. So you basically had to put out a bunch, of, print out a bunch of log statements and so on and so forth. Well, the machines that we built uh, and the software that we built, basically it, w- it had a menu and then a series of different slot, ma- slot machine games. And what we were noticing all of a sudden is that after some arbitrary amount of time of going into a game and going to the menu, going to the game, going to the menu, going to the game, going to the, game, going to the menu, after like 30, 40, 50 times, all of a sudden we would get a hard crash. And we couldn't figure out what it was. And we had some really, really good C developers there. The team at that point was only like 20 people, but there were some really smart guys there. Now, I'm straight out of college, so I don't know what the crap I'm doing. But after a while, it was on me to try to figure out, and and a coworker actually, to try to figure out where is this crash coming from? Why is it happening? And you know, some of my much more experienced, much better coworkers had looked through diffs. They'd looked through check-ins. Nobody could figure out what it was. And eventually, I figured it out. And I can't recall if I just spotted it or if I looked through the um, version history of of all the files that had been changed lately. But what it ended up being was a fall through in a switch statement. And in the switch statement, in 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 each case, we were instantiating an object that was fairly big. I forget exactly what it was, but it was big. So what that means is we would create this new object and allocate a bunch of memory for it. And then there was an accidental fall through that we didn't mean to have. And so we would create another one. And that first object, all that memory got leaked. And it took us four ever to find it. It took seriously, I believe it was two weeks of myself and a coworker just digging through code for two straight weeks trying to figure out what it was. And I bring this up because it looked, it aesthetically, it looked very similar to this go-to-fail issue. There was what appeared on the surface to be a perfectly valid switch statement, and it just so happened that we had forgotten to put the word break with a semicolon after it. We were leaking memory, and... After 30 to 50 times going back out to the menu, that's what caused the error.
1: So if you had instruments, you would have known that. Because you could have run the little graph that shows the memory. You would have seen the leak.
0: No, you're absolutely right. I, I, I know you're slightly being snarky, but you're, that is absolutely true. And that's part of the reason why I think none of us are necessarily that excited to get rid of Objective-C. But I bring this up because here was a situation where we had a handful of really good C++ developers. Now, we didn't have a lot of process You could say our methodology was not very good. But regardless, we didn't have a lot of process. But nevertheless, we had some really bright guys and girls going through this stuff, and nobody could find it because it wasn't something that was visually, almost aesthetically obvious. And I see this as being a very, very, very similar situation. Just food for thought.
1: There's examples of language misfeatures that lead to bugs. The language misfeature you cited is the fall through where you need the break statement. The language misfeature I think in this bug was that you can have single uh single clause conditionals without the braces
0: that mm-hmm. make
1: it slightly less obvious. And some like, people say the language misfeature is that white space is insignificant in the Python people will tell you how this will never happen in Python. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But like I mean, we all the talk about whether this is intentional or not. Like bugs happen all the time that aren't security related that are just plain bugs and cause things to crash, and language features do lead to more or or fewer bugs. Uh, And I don't. I I would love to see some stats on like uh, bugs that are attributable to human error that could potentially have been influenced by language features. So the the single clause if thing, I bet, is probably probably pretty high up in any language that allows that type of thing because it's just so easy to accidentally put a line underneath it or to indent things wrong in a misleading way uh the break and the fall through for case statements forgetting the break i mean i can't count how many times i've done that like it i do it you know usually it's so obvious because there's nothing works at all but if you get unlucky enough and things happen to sort of appear to work uh, you won't notice it because you just write it out and it looks it's all indented the way you want it to be, and you just forgot to put the word. And who doesn't forget to put the word? That's like a rite of passage when you learn the scene. You learn the case <laughs> statement. You will forget to put in break, and you know your thing won't work right.
2: Man, I found a nasty bug this week in my uh, PHP framework. In my uh, in my sort function, I, so I have you know my model class, and I have a couple of convenient model sort functions to do common things, and uh, and one of them. Uh, is if you have your your array and PHP arrays are all hashes slash dictionaries. It's all like you know arbitrary key to value. It can be strings or numbers. So the idea is if you have an array of of numerically indexed models and you want them to instead be indexed by one of the values on each one, like say go ID to object instead of just like zero through n. I had a function to uh, assign the key of each object. Uh, to be that that property that you specify, and I had it work on the array in place.
1: Oops! See the problem. <laughs> Does PHP have uh, defined semantics for what uh, what constructs allow you to modify the thing you're iterating over in place, and which ones don't?
2: Um, it's not really. It, PHP you can generally modify things as you iterate over them most of the time, and it usually works. Reassuring. (laughs) It's kind of a problem that I have to save most of the time and usually (laughs) there. But uh, yeah, so as a result, um, I was, as I was going through, you know, going through the the numeric indexes, and I would say, all right, well, uh, I have this property value of this one. So unset the numeric index that that, that it was at and set it to the string index. Cool. So uh, what happens when the value of one of those things is, like, what happens at the value of uh, the one that was previously at ID zero? Uh, is two. Then you go to ID one, do that, you go to ID two, and then that one gets unset. And so the resulting array can clobber certain elements based on their value and can actually have fewer elements in it than, than the input array. <laughs> I
1: suppose what, what I was getting at was say you pulled off the first one and its ID value was 77. And you shoved it into seventy seven. Would you later on find yourself iterating over seventy seven because the iteration thing now sees a new entry down at seventy seven? Like, I think so, but I the fact that I can't <laughs> that I don't even know that for sure is a problem. Yeah, so it's like <laughs> self-modifying code. I mean you couldn't in theory get yourself into like an infinite loop of where you just these things just keep getting shoved to the end and making new entries that you then iterate over that cause them to be shoved to the end again and all sorts of silliness. Yes. Yeah, it's
2: crazy. And so yeah, and like ob- th- like that was an obvious like if you looked at the code, it looked reasonable. like oh, of course, that, but you know, until you thought about it, and you're like, "Oh, wait a minute." And I, this was, this was a, a, a utility function in my framework that's been there for about seven years. <laughs> and so like, hmm, that, I wonder how many bugs that has caused. Because <laughs> I don't use this function a lot, but when I do use it, and maybe all the time I've used it so far, I like most of the time, I, it just never it never had that situation, so I didn't notice it. Uh, but yeah, that was a problem. Anyway, uh, we are sponsored this week. Our first sponsor, 30 minutes in, our first sponsor is Picture Life. Now, we talked uh, a while back, many times, about hosting your pictures online, photo storage, photo backups, stuff like that. So Picture Life is the one app you need for your photos and videos. Starting with seamless backup and deep integrations into iPhoto and Aperture, Picture Life auto-organizes your photos and gives you the power to view and quickly search through them on any device. Picture Life's private sharing lets you easily control who sees which photos, and their editor works on the web and iOS. Plans start at just $5 per month, and ATP listeners get 30% off for life. Sign up at picturelife.com ATP. They've never done this before, so really give this a shot. Make them, make them love their sponsorship with us. You save 30% on the monthly fee for life. That's awesome. And so they have all sorts of cool features. They have a deep search; it's very, very powerful. Um, it you know it uses the face detection, all that other stuff that's really cool these days. Um, they have apps for the Mac, apps for iOS, uh, but they also even support Windows and Android. Uh, Android just launched in December and is very quickly coming up to speed. Um, and you know th- this company was founded by people who really love photos. Uh, they love creativity, and they love technology. Um, founders of this include Charles Foreman, who I actually know. Uh, Charles Foreman of OMG Pop, uh, Jacob DeHart of Threadless, and Nate Westheimer of the New York Tech Meetup. I know him, too. Um, and uh, this is backed by our VC friends at Spark Capital, and I know them, too. They they uh, were the main VC behind Tumblr. So I'm very familiar with all these people. They're really good people. Anyway, uh, Picture Life is the one app that your photos uh, really needs. So you can back up, search, edit, and share on Mac and iOS. Go to picturelife.com ATP, and you can get 30% off for life. Thanks a lot to Picture Life for sponsoring our show.
1: And if you don't want them to go away like Everpix... Sign up, and unlike Everbooks, they don't have a unlimited <laughs> storage thing. So hopefully they'll have a more viable business model of where you actually pay for what you use.
2: Yeah, it, it seems that way. <laughs> also, Charles Foreman, like that guy, is a machine. Like uh, you remember Draw Something? That was the big thing. That was like their big thing. But he he had a site before that um, that I was I was I socialized with him a bit while he was working on that uh, through David Carp at Tumblr. We were all we we would go out to dinner a few times here and there, and uh, that guy he's incredibly smart. And uh, he, he's just like a, a coding output machine. Like I, I've rarely seen anybody be able to produce as much as he does. And, and he really, really knows his stuff. So I would, I would certainly trust this.
0: Nice. Now to go back from before the sponsor break, it would, it would be wrong of me not to mention that uh, in Objective-C er, – no, I'm sorry, not in Objective-C. I'm, I've been writing Objective-C today, which is why I'm all confused. Uh, in C Sharp – there are interesting language features that prevent both of the bugs that Marco and I are talking about. Firstly, you can't have a fall through in a case in a switch statement unless that case is completely empty. So you would literally have one line, case one, colon, the next line, case two, colon. And if there's anything in between without a break statement, it's a compiler error. And the other thing is, if you try to modify pretty much any enumerable collection in place, you get a I believe that's a runtime error not a compiler error um uh, and so that's just really nice ways to protect you from yourself and that that i really appreciate
1: do i have to tell you that Perl would protect you from these things too or we just assume it now opera did it ding
0: <laughs> yeah, pearl Perl
1: requires braces on single uh statement ifs it doesn't let you do it without them and that was intentional to avoid this feature because the people who wrote Perl were writing Perl in c and hated that uh and there's no switch statements so problem solved there Oh, well, there is a, a terrible deprecated one that's part of a CPAN module, but it doesn't count. It's not part of the language. And the... <laughs> uh, what was the other one? Oh, oh modifying sets. Uh, if you iterate over the keys of an associative array, you can actually modify the array because it gets the key list ahead of time, and it doesn't make reference to the thing. Unfortunately, if you get the keys and values, then it does the good old PHP way where you're just it's just madness. <laughs> but... <laughs> There are other reasons not to do i they should just deprecate getting the keys and values at the same time anyway because I don't want to go into pearl details, but suffice it to say that it's not a they have to keep it they have to keep an iterated value on a per variable basis and that just leads to leads to more madness so that should be deprecated but isn't yet
2: this is one of those things too like you know the the go to fail bug um there's actually a compiler warning uh that, that warns on unreachable code blocks. And so if you have a function that contains like, you know, return zero and then a bunch of lines of code below it, well those those lines will never be reached, because that return statement, that unconditional return will execute and then everything else in the function will never be reached. Go to fail thing, again, it's if you have this unconditional go to statement, which is what the bug line was, that skips over this big block of the function, uh, then that's that code is unreachable. And so compiler, there's a there's a warning for that um in i don't know if it's in gcc but it's at least in llvm and uh the problem is it's not part of the w all option that that a lot of uh nerds use it's not part of the all warnings default set um because i i think i i was reading a little bit about this i i think the main reason why uh is because there's a lot of like you know libraries and stuff that that it would fail on for various reasons and so and you know, that's you know, it's that's always, that's always a tricky balance with warnings when when you're striking that. Like, I, I recently, in my PHP framework, um, I I always had, for the last few years, um, I've used what I call strict development mode, which is when you're in the development environment, everything, even the notice, the the lightest level of PHP warnings, everything became an exception because I don't want my code to ever emit a notice. And I don't care if it's going to be littered with is, with is set statements all over the place. I don't care. Everything... There should be no errors in development, and I recently, just even a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, I recently decided, you know, why, why shouldn't that also apply to production? Like, there's, if I'm if I'm throwing exceptions on any, on any minor error in development, that for I think good reasons. Why should I be more lenient in production? In reality, if things are failing anywhere, I want to know about that so I can stop it, so I can fix it, so I can do the right thing.
1: There's a reason it shouldn't apply in production if you don't control your own servers, which a lot of people don't. Like they're sort of deploying to, they, they have some baseline they need to support for their deployments, but they don't control every single detail. Like they don't have their own machines. Basically, they're not the one who install PHP, for example. They're not the one controlling Apache and the upgrade cycle and stuff like that. And you don't want to run with all your warnings turned on, especially with warnings turned into fatal errors in that situation, because someone will do a minor point upgrade to Apache PHP or some other thing, which will suddenly cause warnings where once there were none and then your production is down because of something you didn't do. But in your case, since you control all of the you control the version of everything, it's not going to get upgraded behind your back, so it is slightly more reasonable to do that.
0: I think
2: I would disagree on that. I think I think I w- I would want that to break, because that's a problem that, that you should know about immediately. And... If the if the people who are controlling the servers do any kind of testing, like if they, you know, maybe deploy it on a development server, or if if you deploy directly to, to production, you know, with stuff like PHP updates, at least, like, you know, do it on one server first and see what happens, at least, if you're gonna be that sloppy, you know. And, and if, you, like, in all those cases, like, I'd rather the app actually crash and burn immediately, you know, it's like the fail early
1: and completely or often, whatever the statement is, fail early. <laughs> the warnings are always going to be something like, this language feature is going to be deprecated sometime in the next two years, so you should stop using it. And it's like, that should not cause your app to go down in production. Like, if that if that did, it's it, you'd be mad that it went down, because you'd be like, that's not important enough for production to stop working. And you'd be mad because, you know, they upgraded something, and it, it broke your stuff or whatever. But, the, like, historically, in, in, in my uh, working career... The reason warnings get turned off in production is precisely this reason, even sometimes when we do control the entire stack, merely because a different department in the same company controls like the upgrade cycle and stuff like that. And the other department doesn't want that department possibly screwing them up by you know changing something that causes a warning that is totally bogus and immaterial and stupid and, and really does not have anything to do with the functioning of the application is practically like the developer is just like waving at you and saying, we made a new message here. Look at our message. Hi, how you doing? Message, message. And you're like, <laughs> I don't want my program to stop working because of that. I'll see it. Fine. we go and patch up that thing so it doesn't emit the warning anymore. It's not like it'll be invisible, but uh, ma- turning it into a fatal error in production is usually a bridge too far.
2: I, I still disagree. I, I see your point. Um, I don't think that's a good enough reason.
1: Well, it's, for a one-man shop that controls everything, yeah, that's fine. But things get much more complicated as the organizations get bigger and, the, and things get farther away from the control of the people writing the code.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree with John. And oh. I think that comes from the fact that John and I have real jobs and it's just you by yourself. <laughs> and So, it's not easy. It's not easy to deal with those sorts of issues, and even in in consulting, it's an even finer line because a lot of times, you know, myself and my team will build something, hand it off to the client, and then walk away. And so, uh, in in many cases, the company for which we've built something may or may not really have the talent in house to figure out when some esoteric. Warning happens and what to do about it. And we're not necessarily contracted with this client anymore. So they're on their own. And not to say that we, you know, silently squash all exceptions or anything like that, but for non fatal things, oftentimes it's not in our or our client's best interest to cause a ruckus over those sorts of things
1: the c toolchain is better about doing this which is basically why minus wall doesn't print so many errors because whoever defined wall way back when now no one can change it because if you did you were like oh this compiled cleanly and now it doesn't your compiler is broken right that's why there's w everything because wall is not historical baggage like that whereas in the much looser Higher-level languages and the fancier tools that people have no problem throwing out the next version, the next minor version of like Ruby or Node or something like that, and adding a bunch of warnings because because they're trying to influence the people who are using the language, because they're trying to warn about deprecating features, because they think they've decided that this could potentially be a problem. Like you know, because their their warnings are like, we don't know this is wrong, otherwise we wouldn't have compiled it, but there might be something you might want to look at here and. Uh, this may be a new warning, so you don't have a statement above it that says "don't warn me about that thing." Like you were saying with the is set, but like there's lots of other things where you could like put pragmas and lexically scoped warnings restrictions to say, "look, I know normally a warning would be emitted here, but I know what I'm doing. Let this thing go past." And you write that right into the code. Well, you can only do that for the for the warnings you know about, and although your C compiler is not going to suddenly add a bunch of things to minus wall, uh, lots of other languages and open source projects that are newer and moving much faster. We'll have no problem adding crap like that. And eventually just the fatigue of the organization keeping up with these things is like, you know, it, politically speaking, they'll be like, can't we just not make the warnings into exceptions in production and just look at the logs? And when we see new warnings, fix them. That will very quickly go through once production is down a few times and bosses and bosses bosses are yelling down at develop and asking why production was down. Uh, and at that point marco will have a much harder time explaining to his boss or his boss's boss why it actually really is good a good thing that production went down because now we know about this this <laughs> failure right away
2: see i i think this is a lot like ending a lisp program with a bunch of closing parentheses just you know just in case you make a mistake which was actually the recommended thing for in my uh my compsci 201 or whatever class when we were learning lisp uh the, the professor actually instructed us to just put a bunch of closing parentheses at the end of the file
1: uh to make it easier <laughs> While learning, he might have been joking, but like uh, basically, from a practical from a practical perspective, if your company is a twenty four seven online company and they you they they lose, let's say five thousand dollars in revenue for every sixty seconds your servers are down, it is much harder to make the argument that Marco has made. Like it, it really depends on the situation, and some reasons are stupid, like institutional reasons where there's you know kingdoms within the company that are fighting each other and. At the developers are distant from the code and they don't control the deployment. Like those are sicknesses within the company, but then there are legitimate reasons. Like we'll say it is a company where everybody works together, but you know, you lose X amount of dollars for every minute the server is down. Uh, it only takes, it only takes one night of that happening to equal one developer salary that they could have had, you know, for the thousands of dollars they lost for their servers being down during that time. And so, yeah, like sometimes you just, you just practically speaking, don't have the luxury of, of turning all warnings into exceptions.
2: See, I think this is a – everything you've just said, like, you know, where it's, like, really critical that if this happens in production, it's a really big problem, that's all the more reason why you shouldn't be reckless deploying updates in production to your critical code, like your language interpreter. Like, if if you're deploying a new version of PHP to your production servers that you've never tested your code on in development, and you have – the kind of situation where you're going to lose tons of money every minute that your site is down in the middle of the night because you updated it in the middle of the night and uh, like and you have to wake up your programmers. Like that's – to me, that's that's like a, a pretty a – there, there's a number of things wrong with that and, and it's, not,
1: it's not your warning level, you know? Dynamic languages can emit unexpected warnings not just because they upgraded the version of the dynamic language interpreter but simply because that code path didn't have coverage. And, you know, it's like they run t- they basically runtime warnings like that there that exists. That's a thing in, in dynamic languages especially for web programming, that if you don't execute that code path, that warning will never be committed. But if you have all warnings immediately become fatal exceptions and in production, someone ap- actually hits that code path. No one upgraded anything. But your, your server still, you know, died because on, on because uh, that turned into a fatal exception.
2: Yeah, there's there's always between you know with with any kind of non-error, any kind of warning or notice, there's this balance that you're striking between, you know, convenience uh, of you know oh an easiness and tolerance of edge cases versus trying to be correct all the time, and it's you know kind of like security. It's, it's like there's, there's a balance you have to strike between convenience and easy and ease and like the right thing, and you know if if you're to the point where you're permitting lots of warnings to happen in production
1: unexpectedly i think that's a sign that something's wrong that well you're not permitting them you just don't want them to be fatal errors you'll address them as soon as you see them because a lot of them could be data driven for example value comes in and it's undefined and how is that value undefined it's okay for it to be undefined but there's some warning that if you use an undefined value in this one function it says this is unexpected and you totally thought it should be expected someone forgot to put please don't give me warnings but undefined values when i pass this in because it's okay for it to be undefined but you never hit that code in your testing and it gets admitted like warnings aren't necessarily I know people like to turn them all on in development so they can just get things clean because it's much easier to verify that there's nothing there. Because once you let any leak through, then you just it becomes an avalanche and you start ignoring them. But in production, like enabling these things isn't necessarily saying, we are telling you there's something wrong with your code. In fact, almost all the time, it's not telling you there's something wrong with your code. And it's just really hard to be at the whim of these messages that don't actually tell you anything useful about your code in production turning them into fatal errors leave them on in production log them immediately address each one of them so that you get that the the uh, the uh volume of those warnings down to zero again but turn them into fatal exceptions like i said i think that's too much
2: but you see i think that and people in the chat have also suggested like you know you can you should just log them and then you know have a policy to deal with them i think in reality that's much more likely to just get ignored or to be oh well it only happened you know it only happens once a week for a few hours, or, or we've only we've only ever seen this message five or six times, uh, so we'll just ignore it. And I think that's the wrong approach for a lot
1: of situations. But you don't need to. You don't need to ignore it. You'll know exactly what line it came from. You can get a stack trace with it. Like you'll, it, like his, it's usually so easy to address because you'll immediately look at the warning, look at the line of code, and say, is this an acceptable condition? or Not. If it's an acceptable condition, you just put it in the pragma that says don't emit that warning from this line anymore. Done and done. If it's not an acceptable condition, then congratulations, you've been alerted. To to a potential bug, and you need to change your code. Both of those situations, one is either dispensed in two seconds, and so there's not a barrier to entry to that. And the second one is you found a legitimate bug, and I think developers will want to fix that as well. I don't, I don't think people will ignore them, especially if you're running all development in the fatal errors mode, because that will ensure that your volume is zero in development. It's just when you get to production that you want to crank it back one notch, uh, to basically to make yourself not go down for reasons that you wouldn't want to be down.
2: But again, I guess I, I think the the human behavior like the the reality of of human nature is such that if you tolerate those warnings in production even if the policy says you shouldn't in practice that's going to lead to a lot of messy code staying there indefinitely whereas if it actually breaks it forces you to fix it
1: big organizations are good at one thing it's uh, making policies annoying policies so I, I actually have more faith in a large uh you know corporation's ability to make a stupid policy that it requires zero war not stupid and you know, to to make a policy that people don't like following because it's human nature to not want to deal with those things and to enforce it i mean it, it goes the other way like the policy that says you got to have all warnings on when you when you build your application a lot of individual developers won't like that because they find it tedious to go trace down all those errors and everything like that. Indie developers tend to have to psych each other up to say, I know I should be running with W everything, but I'm not. Uh, and like they kind of have to encourage each other to do that because they know it's good for them, but it's human nature not to want to do that. It's like flossing. <laughs> in an organization, you have someone two levels up who doesn't have to touch the code who can just force everybody to do that and make it and make it a policy. Like I think as Casey has said this many times in the past, and it's true if anyone works in big companies, Whenever anything goes wrong, someone wants to make a policy to prevent it from ever happening again, which eventually leads to a gigantic web of policies that paralyzes the company and makes them stupid and dumb. But, like I said, that's that's the one thing they're good at, is this bad thing happened, make a policy so it doesn't happen again, and, like, they would institute the policy. We must have zero warnings by the Tuesday after the build. All warnings must have tasks assigned for them with due dates, and, like, that is, that is I think, something that, that big organizations are good at.
0: Right, and I think, Marco, what, what you're maybe losing sight of is that a lot of times going having a production failure it just isn't an option even for seconds and and john was alluding to this earlier but you're you're coming from the position as you should of someone who is not only the peon coder but is also the boss and so if if overcast is out in the wild and it goes down who do you have to answer to everyone will know why now yeah exactly but um
1: date default time zone set right well, you know you're modifying another collection while iterating over it <laughs> <laughs> well now we at least know that we you shouldn't use my framework if you have this situation
0: right but you know what i mean like you have to answer yes you have to answer your customers and that is kind of crummy but your customers can't fire you they could walk away and okay we can go and we can go down that rabbit hole if you really want to but in 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 a direct sense, they can't fire you. They can't not give you a bonus that year. They can't empirically hurt you. And it's very different for – I think I speak for John in saying it's very different for he and I because if we make some sort of decision that we think that dying in production is better, somebody many, many, many rungs up the ladder from us may not agree with that. And I guarantee you the bigger the company, the more – it, well, in my experience, the the, the bigger the company, the, the happier they are to find a head to chop off and let roll. Well,
1: the, the, the big thing is you will not be able to convince them, even if you're 100 percent right, because there are many situations where you really are right. And this was like ignore whether we're talking about warnings like this was a legitimate reason. It is actually better that, that this happened than it not happened. Good luck convincing somebody three levels up in the org chart of that, even if you are just so right and that everybody Who's a sibling to you in the org chart, and below you agrees, and they all sign a petition, and they all get out in the parking lot and say, "We're right." <laughs> the, the the COO or the CTO, and certainly the CEO, you will not convince them, and that's the the harsh world that we live in. You know, let me let me challenge our listeners here. I, I I'm honestly
2: curious. I would like to know if you work at a company that has a a, a big important online infrastructure, uh, you know, Amazon, Google, stuff like that, you know. It, big, important companies where you do things well online, and it's really important that they stay up. I'm curious, what is your policy? what is your company's policy? And you can write us uh, on the feedback form anonymously, you can use throwaway Twitter accounts. you, you know you, we, we don't need this to be like you know on the record. I'm just curious to know like what what do the big companies do in reality where this stuff really does matter and where they are technically generally you know well run companies.
1: I think that that scale it's kind of different because I think Google and Amazon have and Netflix and stuff like that have to design for expected failures. So they have to have basically instead of an organism that is like clean and running, they have to make one where ex- cell death is expected and they just have little busy robots going through and cleaning up the dead cells and stuff. So that is, that's a little bit different. And I'm thinking of like the medium term ones where you're not that big. Every human in the world is not hitting your server, but it has to be up. It just absolutely has to be like, Stock trading or banking things, whereas only a few computers in this network and they're directly connected by crazy fiber optic wires and they're doing high frequency trading or they're doing something like that. Or they're doing bank transfers. But these three or four computers have to always be up. Otherwise, people lose millions of dollars, you know.
2: But again, like that's more reason why you should be really careful what code runs on them and why you probably shouldn't ignore a warning
1: well you're not you're not ignoring it we're just going to run circles it's like it's the question of do you want something that shouldn't that doesn't necessarily have to be fatal to be fatal or to to cause a piece of work to be put into someone's bin to fix that with a deadline because that's the policy and so on and so forth but anyway yeah, people can send us feedback on whatever they think the policy is i think you'll be horrified to find that people don't enable warnings period even in development <laughs> and they'll forget about <laughs> yes. ignoring them they're not even enabled like if, if we just take if we actually took a mass survey what we'd find out is there would be like warnings no we turn those off those annoy us
0: <laughs> yeah you're absolutely right you're absolutely right. And the other thing I should point out is that you saying, Marco, that you only care well, I shouldn't say that. the way you phrased the question was if your livelihood, your your company's livelihood is based on some sort of online service or website or whatever, but what you're losing sight of is a lot of times my clients at, at the at the job in which I work, we oftentimes, but not always, do like a, a corporate intranet, you know, the same sort of thing that Igloo does. And a lot of times we're told this cannot go down when in reality, nothing will go broken if the internet is down. You know what I mean? So, a lot of times from on high, they say this internet will be up always, ah! but really, it doesn't matter. And so, we have to make decisions as consultants based on the requirement from the client, even if we think it's bull. And I think that John was alluding to that earlier. And so a lot of times, even if you could say, well, it doesn't really matter if this goes down. So a lot of times clients will say, well, it better friggin' be up or we're coming and calling you guys and we're going to be pissed. Uh, On a happier note, you want to tell me about something cool?
2: Yeah, and before... one final thing sorry <laughs> that i think that you're right that for your situation where you know if, if it's a consulting a consulting gig where you have to build some system for somebody and then effectively it's going to have zero maintenance for a while whether that's weeks or years or decades mm. like then i think that's a, that's a different environment where you expect the software to just tolerate existing and whatever upgrades happen on its server, which probably won't even be a whole lot, honestly. But uh, in reality, let's be realistic here. Um, but, you know, this thing has to operate with no programmer intervention indefinitely. Right. Then it's a different story, right? Then I completely agree that, you know, you're already doing something that's, by software development standards, pretty bad. In that, like, you're, you're going to have unmaintained software in production use for a long time, right? But and But in reality, that happens all the time. And so you're right that like you know in practice in a lot of places you have to accommodate for that, but that's typically not the kind of place, as you just said, that's not the kind of place where it's super important uh, that there be no technical errors, you know, all the time. So anyway, all right, um, we are sponsored. <laughs> Sorry, uh, we are sponsored this week also once again by our friends at Helpspot. Are you still using email clients for customer support, Casey? Uh, I do customer support. I mean, yes, yes I am. You're probably losing track of important tickets. I bet I am. Trying to use Mark as on red as an organizational tool and I am in coworkers to see who's working on what. That's ridiculous. It's time to get organized. Most help desk software tries to be all things to all people. Infinite feature creep, these huge complex messes. HelpSpot is focused. It deals only with customer inquiries and self-serve knowledge bases. There's no built-in asset management or password resetting or other unnecessary features to get in your way or require complex integration work with your application or your infrastructure. Helpdesk software is also usually really expensive. A lot of them are like around $600 per user per year, which is really high. HelpSpot is just $299 per user once. You own it for life. It's not per month. It is $299 per user one time. You own it for life. And there's no lock-in. You can download the software and host it yourself, or you can have it hosted for you. Either way, even if they host it for you, you always have access to the database that you can directly query, export, and take elsewhere. HelpSpot is not some new startup. They've been available for nearly a decade, and, it's been a- and they've been adopted by thousands of companies and organizations. Customers from single-person startups to Fortune 500 companies all use HelpSpot to manage their support teams. So you can start a free trial today. Go to helpspot.com ATP. And then when you're ready to buy it, if you use coupon code ATP14 for the year of 14, code ATP14 will save you $100 off your already very well-priced uh, purchase. So thanks a lot to HelpSpot for sponsoring our show once again. Remember, go to helpspot.com ATP and use coupon code ATP14 for 100 bucks off.
0: So here's the thing that we're kind of dancing around, and I think it might be time to pull the Band-Aid off.
2: No, I wanted to do the script notes thing. That was I, I thought that's what you were talking about, because it's perfect. It's exactly what you we were just talking about.
1: I know what he wants. He wants to do some our methodologies. He always does. We kind of touched on it a little bit, but uh, we don't have time for script notes. You don't want to save it to f for f the second sponsor?
0: John, <laughs> it's happening. I hate to break I, it to you. It's I,
1: happening. i listened to that script notes podcast for nothing.
0: Yeah, well, so did I. I even listened to the follow-up today just just to make sure I had it done for this episode. Gentlemen, relax. <laughs> this is the way it's going to have to be. Daddy Casey has spoken. We are so, also sponsored this week by Squarespace. <laughs> you're such a jerk. Don't even The all-in-one it. platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional
2: website or online portfolio. <laughs> for a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code Casey. Yay. Squarespace is always improving their platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. They have beautiful designs for you to start with, and all the style options you need to create a unique website for you or your business. They have over 20 highly customizable templates for you to choose from. They've won numerous design awards from prestigious institutions, and it's incredibly easy to use and customize. If you want some help, Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, with over 70 employees right here in New York City. All of this starts at just $8 a month and includes a free domain if you sign up for a year. And uh, you can start a free trial today with no credit card required. It's a real free trial, no credit card. And uh, when you do sign to sign up, use offer code Casey for 10% off to show your support for our show as well. And one more cool thing, uh, two more cool things, actually. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go all out. Three more cool things. Squarespace has introduced this new thing called Squarespace Logo. In addition to building your website, you can now build your own logo for your site, business card, shirt, or whatever you want. Um, also, all Squarespace plans now include the commerce functionality. You can have a store where you sell physical or digital goods. They have all sorts of great integration there. It's so easy to set up. You can finally have your own online store with very, very little effort. It's really amazing. And every Squarespace plan now includes the commerce functionality at no additional charge. And finally, Squarespace is hiring. If you engin- if you interview for an engineering or design position before March 15th, They will invite you and your partner to be New Yorkers for a weekend. They will fly you out to New York, put you up in one of the city's best hotels, and give you a long weekend of checking out some of their favorite attractions, cultural icons, and restaurants in the city. Squarespace will pick up the entire tab for this awesome trip to New York. They've been voted one of New York City's greatest places to work for two years running, so really put them on your short list. They're looking to hire 30 engineers and designers by March 15th. So go to Be A Part Of It. Dot .squarespace.com, that's be a part of it, to learn more about this cool offer. Thanks a lot to Squarespace for sponsoring our show once again.
0: So about the Script Notes episode. Don't even start with me. Are you really going to be that? Uh, if you really want me to abandon software methodologies, even though it perfectly fits the thread of this episode, you then we can move on. John, what do you think about this uh, episode? God, I hate you so much, Marco.
1: All right, Casey, you got to assert yourself. If you want to talk about software methodologies, you can. I, I would say, though, with the time left in the episode, don't you think it deserves to be kind of like in the prime spot with more time? I, I leave it up to I'm abstaining from this vote. So it's, 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 it's Casey versus Marco. Decide what we're going to talk about next. I'm prepared for both. I kind of feel like software methodologies is a big enough topic that we wouldn't want to try to jam into the end of the show. But I'll go either way.
2: I actually am going to agree with John's non-vote, which actually is a vote, but I'm, I'm going to agree with John's non-vote and say that I, I, I'm not trying to avoid it. I do think it deserves more time than this.
0: Uh, you know, you're probably right, and God help you trying to edit this episode, because now I've, I've turned it into a complete cluster.
2: But Oh, this is we, all in. Just uh, one horn great. needed. That's it. Uh, it's all in.
0: I'm excited about that. This is what, this is what people tune in for, Casey. <laughs> oh, this is this the show? All right, so we should probably catch people up on Script Notes as I curse this topic internally, even though it actually is very interesting. So uh, a lot of people came and told us, oh, you should really listen to this Script Notes episode. And Script Notes is a a podcast by two screenwriters, and I couldn't even tell you who they are off the top of my head.
1: John August and some other guy. Thank you. (laughs) That's what I knew too, but I wasn't going to say that. (laughs) Yeah. I, and I only know who John August is because he was on other podcasts that I listened to him. And, and once I, and I've, I've seen his movies and I like them and I'm like, oh, he's the guy who did that. Uh, but yeah, I don't know the other guy. Sorry, other guy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now that other guy knows exactly how I feel. Uh, anyway, so there's this podcast about screenwriting and apparently the de facto industry standard for screenwriting is called what? What is it called again?
1: Final Draft.
0: Thank you. I kept wanted to say Final Cut. Final Draft, and so it's a screenwriting application, and it is, like I said, the industry standard. So, uh, from what I gather, uh, the screenwriters John August and Casey will call him, <laughs> they don't particularly care for Final Draft, and his name is Craig Mazin. Thank you. So, so John and Craig don't really care for Final Draft, and they actually, I guess, had complained about it in prior episodes, but this past episode, at the time we record this. Uh, they had actually had the CEO of the company that makes Final Draft, as well as what, a product manager, is that right?
2: Product or project, I don't know the difference. I, I live in my own little world here with one. <laughs> Fair enough. So some other guy.
1: We'll just call that person long-suffering employee. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. So, so that other guy. Uh, so the two of them came on the show, which I really respect, because it was clear from the get-go that this wasn't going to go well for them. And and so John and Craig had these two other guys on the show and started telling them all the things that they don't really like about Final Draft and why they feel like they've been wronged by not only the high purchase price of what two hundred fifty bucks is that right something like that something like that two hundred fifty bucks or so for Final Draft but also the slow updates and it was a really fascinating view of both sides of the coin of software development both as the the company and the people who create software and the people who consume it and how they don't entirely understand what we go through is in the same way that the the CEO and that other the long suffering employee don't really understand what their customers go through either and I have some takeaways from this, but let me, let me open the floor to you, you guys and see. Marco, what did you think about all this?
2: Well, first, I, I think – so I, I, I listened to the podcast. I made my own opinions of it, and I even made a whole post about it. And all that was before I had read this uh, follow-up article from um, – uh, there's a, a guy named uh, Kent Tessman who writes a competing product. Uh, called i believe uh, called fade in here we go and uh and he he 's been a long time critic uh, i gather of final draft and that 's one of the reasons why he started writing his own because he hated final draft so much, so he started writing his own and uh and, and he 's he 's clearly you know a programmer tech guy but also a a film guy and uh and he he broke down here i 'll put the link in the show notes here he broke down exactly some of the problems uh with with Final Draft, technically, like for instance, that uh, it still doesn't support Unicode, like really, like major, <laughs> major shortcomings, and that one of the reasons why uh, why they had so much trouble going Retina was not necessarily because it was using Carbon, because you can do Retina with Carbon. Uh, it's because they were using uh, Quick Draw, which was deprecated what twenty years ago, ten years ago, a long time ago, at any rate they they've built up quite some technical debt. <laughs> and and so uh there's there's some problems there. It, it it basically seems like they wrote this application uh you know in the eighties and nineties and have not and have been kind of sitting on it and not doing the really hard migrations and not modernizing all this time, and then all of a sudden they were forced to uh by their customers with things like retina and like they were forced to suddenly do this quickly and it became a really big thing. And so it's it's a it's a pretty typical story of pretty severe technical debt being ignored for way too long. I think what I got out of what I, out of the CEO's comments and attitude was that um you know he he wants to make all of his problems your problems. And this is something, you know, the reason why I think it's important for developers to hear this is because you can you can see both sides of it. You can see the c e o arguing the business side and the difficulties of the business side, and then you can see the customers arguing that well, you know your business stuff is your problem and it's not serving us at all, and you're kind of treating us badly, and your product needs a lot of work and is really stagnant and outdated so you can see both sides of it, and you can kind of see like as as a as a programmer or as a as a especially as you know a company owner if you own your own company or make your own product, you can see how you could become that CEO and it should scare the crap out of you because that's a plausible outcome for so many software developers.
1: I think developers should listen to this because it's a people with technical knowledge of both sides of the software industry or people who like listen to this podcast or just Mac nerds or, or into the indie development scene will have the unique experience of listening to a podcast with two camps of angry people, both of whom are just massively wrong at the fundamental <laughs> level about the major points of their arguments. Like, the customers are wrong about, like, your product should be free, and how hard is it to do this? And, like, you know, the, from the outside, they think everything is easy, and they think everything should be free, and Apple gives away the OS for free. Why can't you give away Final Draft for me? Like, they're just so out of left field. Like, they're co- you know where they're coming from, but it's, but it's like, man, they have no idea what your allies of software are. And, and, as, and as Marco pointed out, the CEO is being defensive in ways that are not appropriate for his job as a software like it's his job to figure out a way to keep your software up to date to sell it like you know don't make your those are all your problems you have to figure out a way that's that's called being a software entrepreneur like you have to figure that stuff out you can't throw it back in customers faces and say you don't realize it's really hard to do this and it's clear that the CEO doesn't have a lot of technical knowledge so he doesn't even know the detail things like I felt like I, I wanted to jump into the podcast and explain to each one of them why they're positioned, <laughs> why, why they're both wrong. You customers, look, things can't be free and you're crazy, and let me explain why your reasoning is wrong. And you CEO, you don't even know why this is hard, but it is really hard. And if you had a clue how hard it was, you would have started on these transitions years and years ago. And yes, they might have destroyed your company, but like, look how many other companies have been left in the wake of like not being able to keep up with the changes in, in OS X and iOS. Like, that's your job. you want to You want to be a big boy in the software world? It's not easy. Like the, the best example, is something like BB Edit, which started on Classic Mac OS, and it has had to go through. It's so simple because it's a text editor. It had to go through all these things. They had QuickDraw. They had to get rid of that. They were Carbon. They had to find a way to you know go on modern OS X. They had to adopt Unicode. They had. They went through like. You know, they used to be like atswee and like CoreText and whatever the hell. They've gone to multiple different underlying text engines. You have to do that. Otherwise, you're dead. And, you know, if some other nimble competitor who doesn't have your legacy concerns makes a new application and the only reason you're staying successful is because you're an entrenched interest or whatever, like, we've all seen this play out a million times. So those two ca- guys, those two camps of people were just both angry, both talking past each other and just both fundamentally wrong about, <laughs> about their complaints about the other person.
2: Oh yeah, and you know you you can't have an app that has a code base that like like you, you can't write an app in nineteen ninety and still be around in twenty fourteen and not have to have gone through a few really painful transitions in that time.
1: Unless you coast on like, well, we're just so entrenched, we're the big gorilla, we can afford to like, even if you do that your time, you have a longer timer, but it's still a timer, because like, eventually your app doesn't launch anymore. And you're like, well, now I guess it's the time we have to move away from Quickdraw. It's like, Nope, sorry, too late. Now you're dead. Like, I don't think Final Draft is in that situation yet, because they are such an entrenched interest. But how look at Adobe, look how long it took them we mentioned this look last show, look how long it took them to go Coco. The only reason they can get away with that is because they're Photoshop, you know, we are Photoshop, we are the image editor, we ate up all the other ones. You know, we bought Macro Media or whatever. Like, and even then, like, eventually the OS is like, no, seriously, you got to be 64-bit. You got to be Cocoa, right? Like, even then, they're forced to upgrade. But yeah, the Final Cut, the, the, the CEO didn't understand. Doesn't seem to understand what his what his company does or should be doing. Like, what is how does what does your company do? We sell and maintain a software application. Like, that's a dynamic business. You can't just keep making the same thing and. Like expect – I don't know. Expect everyone else to do your job for you and to make it so that you don't have to – your company doesn't have to do the hard things. I don't, I don't know.
0: Yeah, and there were some quotes in this that – the only a handful that I'd like to quickly go over uh, that that just really stuck out to me. So one of them – and actually John, you already quoted it – was, well – and this is uh, John and Craig. Well, Apple gives an entire operating system away for free. No, that wasn't them. That was the CEO
2: citing that as oh, a it? problem that they have. Yeah.
1: No, I think it was I think it was the CEO pointed out to them that they make money from selling the phones, but I think it was the uh, the uh, the complaining customers who were saying if it wasn't the OS it was something about like look how cheap software is. Like software right. has been devalued, therefore your thing should be $1 or free. It's like selling it telling Adobe that Photoshop should be free or like 10 cents because Angry Birds is 10 cents.
0: Well,
2: to be fair, they, they were not complaining that Final Draft is not free. They, from what I gather, they were complaining twofold, both that it is not a high enough quality product to be worth the high price anymore, and that the upgrades are not worth the upgrade price because of how little progress is made, relatively speaking, in each upgrade. That, that seemed like their bigger complaint, not that the app should be free or very, very cheap. It seems like they'd be very happy to pay the $250 for the app if it was a better app.
1: Well, but th- but even then they want to pay $250 10 years ago and never pay again and just and, and continually have the app updated. I didn't get that impression. I don't I definitely got that impression that that's like Yeah, I did not. that they would that I think that I got the impression that they would have hated to sp- spend $250 way back when and then they just want that app to work forever and to continue to be updated with the OS and to get retina and to get unicode support and everything all for free. Like th- they seem to have an entitlement complex that was not not proportional to the the value of the, the value that they're deriving from the software and it was kind of like compounded by the fact that this is crappy software that hasn't been updated so they feel burned by any amount of money they put towards it like it's mostly because they have a resentment like they feel like they have to have this program because like everybody uses it and i think that's the, that's the core of their dissatisfaction is like it's like an abusive relationship where like well you have to get final draft cuz everybody uses final draft and then you're you're already bitter at this thing and if it's not the most amazing program that you that does everything perfectly then you're just going to be pissed when anything is wrong with it and there seems to be a lot wrong with this program
0: yeah i think marco is is right though that i don't think they were embittered necessarily about paying for it it just seems that they they thought that it was an order of magnitude too expensive, and I'm making numbers up. I'm putting words in their mouth, but instead of $250, it should be $100 up front for the first release and like 20 bucks for every supplementary release. And additionally, I think they were extremely embittered that these upgrades or updates, whatever they called them, were a heck of a lot of money, and even I would probably agree to this a heck of a lot of money for really not that much update and Retina was cited several times. I think they said it was like hundred dollars for the retina up, upgrade update whatever it was
1: it was like eighty bucks or something and like maybe I'm crazy, but if it was a, if it was an application that I use for my livelihood, I would pay eighty dollars for a retina upgrade like i i wouldn't blink at that because like say say you are you use Photoshop to do your work you're a graphic artist and a Photoshop update comes out, and the only upgrade in it is that the UI is Retina and, like, a couple of bug fixes, and it's $80 for the upgrade. I mean, I would pay it. But wouldn't any of you pay it? Yeah.
0: I mean, I suppose I would.
1: I mean, like, maybe we, we have different... I guess we, we probably value software differently because we kind of know what goes into it. And But, like, but it's not like it's, like, 50 grand. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a site license to some CAD program. Like, like it could... They just don't know, like they're just that's why i think they just they're getting used to the world where everything is like cheap or free and but it's like but this is part of your livelihood this is how you make money and i think it all gets back to it's because they don't like this tool they feel like they're forced to use it if they had their choice they would use something different and better and it's like if you're gonna force me to buy it and then now suddenly i'm not happy of it like say you hated photoshop and you needed it for your work like it's like say you hate microsoft word and you have to get it because you deal with stupid people all day who insist that you send them everything in doc format right <laughs> then, you, then you'd be then you'd be pissed that the only you're going to do like a, a an 80 upgrade to office for and the only change was that it was retina and compatible with mavericks then you'd be pissed but it's most you're mostly pissed because you hate words so much that any money you put towards continuing this charade of having to use this, this program on behalf of other people like that's where i feel like they're coming from
0: uh, i think it's that but it's also that what was once a decent product has stagnated the impression i got and i've never used final draft but the impression i got was that it was at one point a good thing like what they were saying about how by based on the length of the pdf or the printed document you could take a guess at about how long the script was that was very cool and apparently something that the at least the ceo seemed to think that that was unique to them well anyways it, the the product started pretty solid and pretty good but kind of never really went anywhere and and these these two guys, John and Craig, were, for example, really embittered that it took so long to get retina support in there. And then on top of that, they got charged for it. And so they were saying to the CEO, you knew this was coming. You knew this was coming. How did you not figure this out? How did you not do it? And at first, I, I, I was like, well, you know, it's hard. I still don't have my fast text update out for Iowa 7 because I'm a slacker and I have better things to do with my time. But, you know, I can understand that. Well, then the CEO says, and this is another one of my quotes, you know, well, we're 40 people. And I think to myself, okay, so how did you not get Retina done with 40 people? But then later on, he says, well, but 10 to 15% of us are programmers
1: what the hell is everyone else doing? Sales and marketing. <laughs> the best part was when he said, well, you know how we learned about Retina? Someone brought, a mat- Someone brought a computer into the office and showed it to us. If that's how you learned about Retina, it shows you're not engaged with the platform on which you deploy your software. Like, in even trivial, you don't even subscribe to Macworld. Like, you do nothing. You know, you know, Forget about going to WWC, which, of course, you should do if, you're- if your job is that you write a software product for the Mac, for crying out loud, right? Uh, the... the- <laughs> Yeah, this was kind of depressing. Like, the CEO, like, he did himself and his company disservice by coming on this this program and saying all these things because every word out of his mouth was, like Marco said, it's like, the answer to every single one of his comebacks was like, that's your problem. That's not my problem. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? It, it may be that the natural way of things is that you've now painted yourself into a technical corner and you must go out of business. And it will be a blessing for the industry because we can all give our money to these other hungrier developers who... If they're unlucky, we'll go through exact same cycle as you get big, become popular, not update their software for a decade, uh, crumble under their own weight, and the cycle will continue. But like, that's not your customer's problems in any way, shape or form. And so like, it's, I don't, I guess he doesn't have people telling him. Don't go onto a program and and tell even when your customers are actually wrong about like everything should be free and you know all this stuff like don't you can't go on to a program and and tell them about all your woes and 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 they're, they're going to go oh well now I, like I guess maybe he was hoping for empathy like that they would put themselves into his shoe as the uh, non-technical CEO of a company that made terrible strategic decisions for the past decade and go oh well now I feel bad for you it's all right I feel better about <laughs> buying your software. I mean, and
2: one of the and one thing I, I noticed, Casey, you have this in the notes, and and uh, so I might as well bring it up now. Um, one of the one of the more interesting parts of of this dynamic, I thought, was that the CEO opened the conversation basically by saying that they've done surveys, and I believe it was ninety two percent of the of the people said that they are very happy with Final Draft, and therefore they think they're doing great. and And like that's so flawed on so many levels, it's like, and and they. And uh, and and John and Craig briefly uh, mentioned, like, well, you know, that's like that's only people who responded to the survey, which is obviously going to be mostly people who like you, or you know, like it's that's so not a random sample of what people think of your product, <laughs> and and the CEO's entire attitude seemed to just be that, well, we 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 keep hearing from people who like it, and therefore everything's fine and we don't have to like his attitude from the very beginning was we're fine because some people like us and therefore we don't need to make any changes at all and it's so easy for people to fall into that trap it, you know if you select what you're listening to and and i've i've never seen this app and even i know everyone hates it like i've no, i've I've heard about this app for for years now of about how much people hate this in random you know edge conversations here and there and not even being in the business, I know people hate it. That obviously, that's a pretty widespread problem, and it's so e- it's so easy to surround yourself only by the uh, the inputs that you want to believe. Um, I'm sure there's a term for that. Like there's, it's so easy to fall into that. That this guy, honestly, I think he honestly thinks that everything's fine, that he's he's in complete denial of any major problems, and therefore, that's I think why he was so weirdly defensive and aggressive. Uh, in his responses
1: I don't know if I really believe that he was sincere that he really believed that but like it's possible because the denial is pretty strong but like, I think the reason you've heard about it and I have as well even though we're not screenwriters is because we travel in software development circles and anybody who knows anything about software can look at this application and you can you can smell like the death on it or you know like <laughs> like even if even if you don't know it's using QuickDraw, you're like oh geez this program has not been updated for a while like you see old we, I, I again I have no idea how this looks but I bet we could pick up like it's using older controls when it should be using newer ones like maybe for a long time the text wasn't properly anti-alias or looks like it was rendered differently because it's quick draw and like you know just we could tell that it, that there are problems with it uh and the reason i i think he may be right if you took a random sampling of their customer base is because their customer base are not technical people and they view this as kind of like especially if you if it, since it's such an institution they view it as if you want to become a screenwriter, this is what you get and this is the tool you deal with and everyone complains about it but like you know, you might as well complain about the weather because to do your job, you have to use final draft in the same way that you might say you have to use Photoshop. If you're a, you're a graphic designer, you just, you know, there's no no other choice out there. But they're non-technical people, so they're not equipped to to understand what's wrong with this program and why. And, and they're more willing to accept that, like, whatever's wrong with it, like, well, that's just the way it is. What can you do? Uh, so that, in that respect, they may have good survey responses. But the thing that makes me think of in the worst case scenario is I will bet you in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, maybe even two thousand and ten, if you were to survey all Blackberry users, they would say they love their blackberries, and it doesn 't matter Black- Rim is still doomed, right? you could think, all oh, the people who have blackberries love it it 's like yes, but it, the time has passed it by, and customers may have it and may love it, and maybe Stockholm syndrome or they may not know better, but <laughs> like from the outside, we all can see bye bye, blackberry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah and the the other thing that I found interesting about this and and it's the only other quote uh, that I that I want to bring up is apparently there was a feature called they they called it collaborator which I, I guess was some sort of collaborative writing thing where you can work on a screenplay two people can work on a screenplay at the same time. Sounds be that. Yes, yeah, it, it sounded a lot like that. Yeah, that's a very that's a very good analogy. And so they said and I, and this should be pretty much verbatim collaborator was built when it was on a peer-to-peer technology with no security it would still work like that today what they were saying was when they built this feature that was designed to be used between two people probably not co-located they did it without even thinking about firewalls and I, i unless they wrote it in 96 are you kidding me? Like,
1: how is that okay? And
0: that just completely sealed the deal in my mind
1: that screenwriters don't have firewalls. Casey, you think they have IT departments? They're they're lonely people in their apartments with mm-hmm. dial up internet connection, slaving away and the next great script.
0: Yeah, and every router since ni- since two thousand one hasn't included a firewall in it. But
1: yeah, he he wouldn't know about this stuff anyway if he was talking about it. But yeah, but yeah,
0: yeah. And that's the thing is, I mean, if that is such an obvious technical hurdle that you would have to get over to do that kind of feature and they shipped it at least for a little while and I guess they've pulled it since they shipped it without even thinking about that like how is that possible it just it it reminds me that there are terrible software developers out there or if these developers are good just unbelievably indescribably out of touch management or both
1: if I was on that podcast I would have also brought up the meta point which is that the screenwriting format is ridiculous and anachronistic and uh, really deserves to be destroyed and torn down and it is held aloft by the collective you know by tradition basically this is the way it's always done this is what a screenplay looks like let me tell you about all the great qualities of it oh you can always tell exactly how long a thing will be in minutes by looking at the number of pages there's always a certain number of pages every day everyone knows it like it can continue to be held aloft by that like sort of oral tradition and indoctrination of new people into the industry that this is what a screenplay looks like but the format is dumb it is not like it's (laughs) it's a monospace font it's formatted crazily lots of things are in all caps and everyone who enters the industry and everybody gets used to it comes to like it and will not accept any other format but bottom line objectively wipe out all the people who have ever seen a screenplay show them this for show the new people this format they'll be like ugh. Like it is, it is not of this time. It is of a different time, of a time of typewriters and monospaced fonts and all caps and not, you know, it's dumb. And so, what the best, the ideal thing to happen for the entire industry would be to not only for final draft to be disrupted, but for the entire screenplay format to be replaced by something better. I have dim hopes of that ever happening because if there's any group of people who is not not raring for you know amazing disruption innovation it's it's screenwriters in the entertainment industry they just want their format they don't want it to be the way it is they just want slightly better tools to work on it and they will consider that a, vic- a victory but from the outside it's clear that the screenplay format is stupid
2: well and to be fair in the follow-up episode of their podcast uh, john and craig did address that a little bit and talking about things like how the one page per minute thing is this kind of uh, elementary assumption that, you know, it's like, it's like three paragraph essay you're taught in middle school. It's, you know, it's like, it's a very basic thing that, you know, in, in practice, once you get, once you're a real professional, it doesn't really, it's not that simple or it's not necessary to rely on things, you know, assumptions like that, or these tenants like that. Um, and there's also this thing called fountain, which from what I gather is like a Markdown like or Markdown based, uh, plain text format that d- does away with, manual pagination and stuff like that and so it, it does sound like they are actually moving forward and and the problem really uh seems to be that that uh final draft is not and because final draft has this this position of power right now where you know or at least they have to date where they were the standard and they have their own file format and they're they're like you know they're relying on. These invariants that okay well pagination matters above all else and all this other stuff and then and the reality is that that industry is being disrupted just like so many other uh, technical industries where now there's a whole lot of other apps coming out some of them cheap and terrible but some of them good uh, that are doing things more in a more modern way and and that's the problem like you know just like so many other industries. Uh, I don't think it's going to be like I don't think final draft is going to be disrupted and replaced by one thing. I think it's going to end up being disrupted and replaced by a few standards and then a few different apps that read those, that read and write those standards. And it seems like um, this fountain format is probably going to be that standard. But again, we. I- <laughs> I think it's funny, now all three of us are talking about something we all know nothing about.
1: Yeah, we're going to get all the email of people explaining the various features of the screenplay format yeah. that were created intentionally for a specific reason. And like, and I'm sure like the formatting and the layout and everything has had a purpose originally, but some aspects of it are clearly just artifacts of a technology that was available at the time, specifically you know the all caps the monospace font, the the layout being done basically by a series of spaces with the monospace font like all those things are done because that's what you had that's how you know you weren't going to typeset it like a book because that's not efficient for the production process you need people to be able to type these things up it's kind of the same way that you see like the the uh opening parentheses used to make ASCII art to make the little boxes on the front of legal documents. Marco must yep. be familiar with this phenomenon. Like, oh, yeah. Like, the fact that that's still... It doesn't really matter as much in legal documents. It's like, whatever. Lawyers, everything they do is all made up and crazy with their legal language and everything. But screenplays could benefit... From a format that took advantage from of modern technology, keep all the good stuff about the old format in terms of visually blocking out things with white space and making it easy for actors to read, and all you know. All I don't. I'm just making up what the features may be of the format. There are probably good things about the format, but the bad things are just being carried along like those parentheses <laughs> on legal documents, and they just they're just ridiculous at this point.
0: All
2: right. Thanks a lot to our three sponsors this
1: week: uh, Picture Life, HelpSpot,
2: and Squarespace. And we will see you next week.
1: Now the show is over They didn't even mean to begin
2: Cause it was accidental Accidental. Oh, it was accidental
0: Accidental.
1: John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental Accidental. Oh, it was accidental Accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter, you can follow
2: them at C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S. So that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T,
0: Marco USA
2: S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A, Syracuse. It's accidental.
1: Someday, Casey. Someday. I cannot
0: believe I let you railroad
1: me. Well, the script notes is timely. But no, I, I abstained. So it was, it was you and Marco could have worked that amongst yourselves. If, if Casey had insisted, I would have gone along with it. He didn't really abstain. I did. I abstained. I gave, I gave my opinion, but I'm abstaining from the vote. I was What I was trying to convince Casey was that uh, not getting it done today does not mean it will never get done. And in fact, it may be done better in the future. But he still could have insisted, and I would not have opposed him. Why don't we just do
2: it next week? We'll say right now, next week will be software methodologies, and nothing will happen.
1: Bold statement. <laughs> nothing, yeah. When, when Apple buys Nintendo, we won't talk about it at all. Yep.
0: Oh, God. Now you've jinxed it, and we'll never talk about it ever. This podcast will end. If it
1: results in Apple buying Nintendo, your your sacrifice will have been noble.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, you saying that we will do it next week, whether or not you're serious, has pretty much... Absolutely prevented that from happening ever. That's that's the equivalent of saying, well, this will be a short show. <laughs> oh, God, Margo. If Apple buys Nintendo and
2: there's no John Syracuse a podcast to talk about it, did it really happen?
1: Yeah. I, I, <laughs> oh, this is my third podcast in like three days. I did an incomparable, I did command space. Now we're doing this. I I'll have to just take a rest to get ready for the big Nintendo announcement. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I hate you too. I know. And we didn't even talk about driving with glass. That was one another remarkable topic.
2: Yeah, I mean, is there that much more to say on it?
1: I, I just wanted to say that I have looked into this zero amount as is my way for this show. But what I assumed when I saw the headline of that story flying by on Twitter was that they were only lobbying to allow you to wear it in the car. Like, for example, if you get it with prescription lenses and you need them to, to see to drive. they didn't want. They wanted to make it illegal. So you, you know, didn't want it to be illegal for you to merely wear them. Uh, I didn't think they were lobbying for it to be legal for you to to have it turned on and using it. But uh, since I didn't read any of these articles, I have to say I don't know. Did you Did you read them? And you can tell me. Um, I don't think we I don't think we know that
2: much to that much detail. Hell, but might as well address this here. Um, I, I've mainly heard mostly support of of my position. Uh, and briefly, my position is that for Google to to lobby to actively lobby against states that want to prohibit glass use while driving um i think that's incredibly irresponsible by google and you know I, i think it's you know pretty much all reasonable people agree that texting while driving is is dangerous and should be prohibited and and certainly avoided um people will do it anyway but but i think i think even the people who do it know that it's unsafe and wouldn't really argue that strongly that that it was safe um and I think texting while driving and using Google Glass are pretty close. Like, I don't think there's a huge difference in safety in a car between doing those two things. I don't think one is dramatically more safe than the other. It's both, like, it's engaging your visual attention Um in a way that, like, you have to like interact with a with like a multi step process with a computer system where you're not looking at the road.
1: And well, actually, now that I've thought about it for the five minutes that you've talked, what about if they are envisioning something like the HUD on your M five?
2: There are arguments that people have made that say things like, "Well, this is just like looking at a nav screen, or it's just like looking at a heads up display." And I think the difference is that. You know, a, a na- first of all, a nav screens and heads up displays are designed very, very carefully and conservatively to be like maximally safe and and also to minimize how long you have to look at them. In ideal cases, um, some of them go as far to be like you can't even like some of them won't even let you enter an address in navigation if you're moving, for instance. Like there's all sorts of safety things that that car systems use to either prevent or discourage you from using it very irresponsibly. Um, things like you know how DVD players, some, some, like sometimes there'll be these DVD players that will, that can play video in the front seat, but you can only technically play it while you're parked. And yeah, some people will, will hack that and disable it. But like, there's all these things in place for for things that are installed in cars, especially things that come stock from the manufacturers. There's all these safeties in place to to try to make them as as non-distracting as possible. And like a heads-up display displaying your speed. Well, that's you know that's no more distracting than a speedometer. You don't have a lot of reasons to like stare at that for a while. Well, what if the
1: heads-up display in your glass was showing nav overlaid on the street in front of you?
2: If that is what it's showing, that's fine. But I think, again, this is like a human nature, human behavioral kind of thing. Um, th- the reality is like we've banned in most places we've banned handheld use of cell phones. Now you could also say, well. What if you're using the cell phone in your hand looking at a navigation screen? And that's in places where handheld cell phone use is banned. That's banned. And I think this is one of those cases where, you know, the reason why that's banned is that, yeah, maybe you might be doing that. But there's also a very good chance that a lot of people who, who do that are also going to, like, you know, oh send a quick text. It'll just take a second. You know, like, and and this, there's all there's all this potential for these multi-purpose general computing systems like smartphones, like Glass. There's all all this potential for misuse, and misuse is so easy and so common that it, they should probably ban it outright because they they know that like yeah you might be using it for navigation, but there's a pretty good chance you're not. Or there's so many other things to do with it that aren't navigation that you know in reality people would like be reading a text message or. Dictating dictating a message or reading Twitter or reading reading an email that just came in or like like there like there's so many potential abuses there, and it is so it is so much more distracting than the than car systems because you're like interacting with the computer at that point like you're like it's a multi-step interaction you're like visually engaging it in in a way that it's non-trivial and and takes more than a split second of your attention and and so I do think there's a significant difference there and and. And some people have also said, like, oh, well, what if glass is, you know, what if you can wear it, but you have to keep it off? Again, same thing. Like, how you can't tell from the outside whether it's on or off. So a lot of people would just sneak by and say, oh, well, you know what, I'm just going to leave it on because, you know, I'm responsible. I'll be okay. And that's a problem, too.
1: Well, that's why I'd like to know what Google was lobbying for. Like, basically, were they lobbying for you're allowed to wear it, but it has to be off versus you're allowed to wear it and use it? Like, I'm pretty
2: sure it was the latter. I- I'm-, I'm pretty sure they didn't distinguish between on and off, that they just wanted you to be able to wear it.
1: Yeah, well, like, I think Google's bet, and I think they're right on this bet, is that augmented reality, as they call it, is probably the future of more or less everything. But I think you're right that uh, if that is the future of everything, we are unfortunately going to have to wait for it to be built into cars because then it will be... More or less single purpose, uh, and even if it's the exact same technology, the exact same kind of display where it like overlays the nav on top of the street in front of you and shows you where you should turn with a little arrow, like you can imagine lots of really cool features. Like, because I think that is actually safer than it looking down at a nav screen, like to see the little arrow in your little picture of your car going, if you could just continue to look out the window and it just looked like a, a little red line was painted on the road turning to the right, that's safer, and I think that is definitely coming. If that comes from your glasses, though, chances are good, even if you have, like, a driving mode and if the glasses have to be certified by, like, the Highway Association, like, it's so much safer when it's built into the car. A, because car technology moves so slowly that they're super conservative and everything sucks there anyway, and B, if it's built into the car, the car maker is extremely motivated to make sure that you can't read text on it right like the car the car maker could not ship that
2: and like yeah and they're they're more liable with that kind of stuff like like you could you could plausibly sue the car maker for designing a very distracting system a lot more easily than you could sue google for making uh you know
1: right because it's built into the car Google's going to say you shouldn't have been doing that while you're driving but you're like if it's built into the car you're going to say but you put it in the car exactly like, and that's why that, that's why you can't enter the address when you're moving because the car makers like if we allow them to do this they will they'll crash and they'll sue us
0: what it's worth, I can actually read text messages on my iDrive in my BMW.
1: Like on the screen? Mm-hmm. Well, you should crash into something and sue BMW and get a better car.
0: <laughs> I just wanted to point that out real quick. I'm sorry, Marco. Go ahead. All right. All right. So part of my
2: position on this was, was a pretty severe condemnation, saying, like, you know, if Google, Google is actively lobbying for something that I believe is pretty clearly very unsafe for driving. And car accidents are, are no joke. Like, it's a really... Car accidents are a serious problem. So many people get injured or die in car accidents. And for the most part... And, you know, things that we pay a lot of attention to, like plane crashes and terrorism, like, that ends up killing way fewer people than car crashes. Like, car crashes are a big problem. It's a really big deal. And car safety should really be taken very, very seriously and, and not at all lightly, and not at all recklessly. And so for Google to actively lobby against car safety, basically, to actively lobby for their own self-interest in a way that's, that's pretty clearly unsafe uh, in, in, in general use uh, for cars, like people are probably going to die as a result of that. And if Google Glass becomes really popular, which, you know, it probably won't in all honesty, but suppose it does imagine how big of a problem that would be and how many people might unnecessarily die because Google fought safety legislation. That's, a really, that's, that's serious. You know, That's not a joking matter at all. So a lot of people said, uh, well, isn't Apple at fault for people texting while using their phones and crashing? And no, that's a completely different situation because Apple has not, to my knowledge, actively fought against anti-texting laws. And I, if if they have, let me know. I'm, I would love to know that. But that is not at all the same thing, and it's not comparable. Um, you know, it's... Obviously, manufacturers on both sides of this weirdly political debate, uh, <laughs> manufacturers on both sides can potentially do more to prevent people from using their phones while driving. Um, you know, now you can, you can think, okay, well, Apple has this new M7 processor that can supposedly detect when you're in a car probably can't detect whether you're driving or a passenger, but it could detect whether you're in a car, maybe show some kind of warning or something. You know, there there are things they could do, but they're not like actively fighting against safety legislation. And that that I think puts a very different uh type of action on it. Like what Google is doing I think is actively harmful, whereas the the inability to try to prevent people from texting in a car uh is, you know, like like inaction is is not as bad as like actively harming safety actions i think
1: well google's also in the position to potentially bring the largest safety increase in in car transportation ever which was through their self-driving cars assuming that continues the pace and does not fade away and they are, continue to be successful with it i'm not saying that balances out like therefore you're allowed to do something that's going to kill more people now that's a bad idea <laughs> but uh but like historically speaking if if history goes out, everyone will forget that briefly they killed a bunch of people with Google Glass. Uh, like, I, I think what they're thinking is on the Google Glass is that they also believe that augmented reality is the future. Just look at that crazy, whatever that was, that thing with the phone thing that maps out the runes and everything like the tech for doing that augmented reality stuff is getting better and better all the time. It's going to be everywhere. And Google was like, if we wait for the car makers to do this, it will take forever to get here and it will be crappy. And all of that is true, but I think they just have to like, the the alternative is they should either make their own car with this built in. Hey, buy Tesla, go nuts, like have, have a go at it, but trying to put it into a general purpose computing device that you wear in your face, a, you have to get everyone to wear that stuff in your face and b like, they would have, they would have to sign up for all of the sort of liability type concerns that the car makers do, uh, in terms of regulation and everything. And like, they're not prepared to do that. They want, they want the freedom to do whatever the hell they want. And, Just don't bother us because eventually we're going to get to this awesome augmented reality that's coming eventually anyway, and we're going to get there first because we can move faster. But that's playing a little bit fast and loose with uh, with people's lives. I agree.
2: And that also that also seems like a a, almost a childish and naive. um...
1: That's Google for you. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. That's the problem. It's like, well, that's what that's what we love about. That's what I love about Google. Like the self driving cars is the same type of thing. That's what we love about it. But in the same time, it gets them into that like that's why i always think of google's corporate mindset not as evil more as like a naive hacker type of you know like denizen of reddit like technology is cool we can do cool things with technology uh, and let's just go do that cool things because it's cool and let's not think too much about the consequences or whether it will make money or anything like that you know that's what we love both love and hate about google
0: all right titles go to fail
1: How's the title not go to fail someone put it in all caps this isn't basic (laughs) (laughs) haven't you seen the code oh oh yeah that's one point we didn't address about the go to thing that i wanted to address all the people who have never seen a c program or a unix c program were like go to who uses that uh if you are a c programmer uh and you've come from the old like just look at the source code your favorite units look at bsd look at linux or whatever you'll find go to everywhere because they didn't really have uh, exceptions and they if the control flow necessary with with lots of nested ifs to get you out of an if you end up having to make like flag variables and really contorted logic go to is actually the cleanest solution in those situations where you want to get out of the normal flow of the program and go down to it, you know, or you could do set jump or whatever you want. But go to is, is the idiom that believe it or not. I know the only thing you've heard about programming is that go to is evil because there's a paper that you have never read that got passed around the internet 10 years ago. (laughs) Uh, But look at any real C source code and go to is there and it's used for exactly this purpose. And it has all these same problems. And this is not what the paper about go to was against really, but you can see go to does contribute to this anti pattern, but you know, that's why, uh, Newer, better languages have exceptions.
2: Yeah, and, you know, and, like, the go-to is, like, there's things like break and continue in a loop that I would argue break and continue, uh, especially break, like, that's really not a whole lot cleaner than go-to,
1: like, if you think about it, like, it's... What? But you need, like, if you have, like, very contorted logic, like, you have a condition and then a condition and then a condition and you want to break all the way out of it, then you even break doesn't save you, then you just end up with flag variables and it makes the code incomprehensible. (laughs)
2: The people who read up the function a little bit and saw the uh, type of the variable os status, pretty sure if you knew what that was, you were not surprised to see the goto. Like I yeah. think that's that's like you know if you've if you've been around old C APIs long enough, um, you know you've probably seen that, and uh, it's you know a typical thing where it's like you call a bunch of API calls, and if they return zero, everything's cool, and if they return non-zero, something bad happened. And so if you want to do this like you know eight step process where you have to call these eight different API functions and you have to have error checking code around every single one of them and say if any of these return non-zero fail. That's what this was. That's exactly what this was. And 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 uh, and fail in this case like the fail label didn't mean it has failed. The fail label was the destination of where to jump to if it ha- if it had failed, which is basically like go to the end. Like go to the end of this logic block. That's what it was.
1: That's another uh, Objective-C thing that we could have talked about in the Copeland 2010 show is that, you know, the, the, it, it's a convention in, in basically Cocoa, not so much Objective-C, but Coco to not use uh, exception exceptions for control flow. Is that correct? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, except, like, in Objective-C, objections, like, are by, by like, policy and, uh, and like, the API norm, uh, object, uh, exceptions are not meant to happen in in running code most of the time like it's not meant to be control flows you said like it's it they're meant to, like you're probably not meant to catch an exception in objective c
1: right like the, the and it's not like so much a language feature as it is an api convention but still that that type of thing leads you to these like the tedium of of uh you know uh, You know, uh, write param error conditions, you know, where you pass an address to some error thing that's going to get filled out, or return values where it's some status, whether it's OS status or any other type of thing. That type of thing is is seen as slightly barbaric in languages that do allow you to use exceptions for do expect you to use exceptions for flow control and then of course there's the pathological case of like you know check exceptions and all the java crap and like it can go too far in the other direction as well but i would i would put that on a list of things that objective c that other languages do differently that people find cumbersome and tedious and error prone and uh, lead to these type of uh, situations where you find yourself needing a go-to
2: as far as i know in my objective c code i've written so far instapaper Bugshot, the magazine and overcast i don't think i've ever written a try catch block i think i've always made exceptions blow up the whole thing
1: yeah because in coco they're not you're not you're not supposed to like exception is supposed to be exceptional like that that's my understanding is <laughs> the policy is that right. it's not for control flow it's not just to get me out of this nested block it's like something has gone wrong and maybe the, you can put up a dialogue and exit your app or do something like that but you're not supposed to use it as a, as a form of flow control even if even though i assume you can if you wanted to
2: yeah, like it's it's more like an assertion failure in Objective C. Yeah, I think exactly. like that's how, that's how you're more supposed to use it. Like, in fact, I think assertion failures might even throw exceptions. I don't
0: I don't remember exactly, but anyway. All right, uh, titles, titles. <laughs> uh, go to fail is obvious. I'm not against it. Um...
1: A lot of podcasts I think are going to have that title this week, though, so we might want to avoid it so we can be cool. Ish. <laughs> so we can be cool. I added ish. Everything is relative. <laughs>